Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. This episode is a discussion episode in which I go over plans for History Respawn going forward and also kind of discussing with my friend John Harney about the games we've been playing. Hey, John, what's going on? Hey, Bob. Pretty good. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Good. Uh, so I was going to lead off this episode talking about what we have in store for History Respawn in the coming months, in particular our fall schedule. And uh, this fall we've got kind of a, a perfect situation with regards to uh, historical uh, video games or historically themed video games. It's kind of a – it's a bit of a murderer's row. Uh, so it starts in September with uh, the remastered edition of Bioshock. Uh, and we plan on recording an episode on Bioshock, kind of looking at uh, not just uh, the alternate history within uh, the Bioshock series, but then also looking in particular at kind of the uh, very strong presence of uh, conservative American uh, political philosophy in that game, uh, particularly the philosophy of objectivism uh, and the philosophy of Ayn Rand. And uh, I think, uh, John, you're going to be taking the lead on that episode. Is that right? That's right. You know, I'm excited about that. Bioshock is one of those games I've played. It's one of these few games I remember that lived up to the hype. For those who remember when the game came out 10 years ago, I think, 9 yeah, or 10 06, years ago. 06, 07. Yeah. Um, that was a game that was being talked up, talked up, talked up. And uh, one of the greatest pleasures of my gaming life was that it was actually that good. That was kind of amazing. And uh, a lot of fertile ground there for our guest. I'm really looking forward to that one. Yeah. Uh, so after that, in October, uh, October 7th sees the release of Mafia 3, which is a game that's set in a uh, fake version or a uh, alternate version of New Orleans in 1968. And uh, this game has gotten a lot of publicity so far, uh, particularly people excited about uh, the game's protagonist, uh, who I think, I think his name is Lincoln Clay. And he is an African-American uh, Vietnam veteran uh, who's returning to uh, this kind of uh, alternate history, alternate version of New Orleans in 1968. Uh, attempting to take over uh, crime syndicates in the city. And it looks pretty good so far from the trailers. Have you seen any of the, the early footage, John? I've seen a bit. I've seen bits and pieces. Um, people are kind of talking about it, which is nice. I think there's a little bit of excitement kind of building on Twitter a little bit about, about the kind of things you just said, you know, the setting, the character, um, Try not to get my hopes up, going off the Bioshock comments a bit earlier, but but <laughs> Mafia 2 was an interesting game. The Mafia series is an interesting series, I think. So I'm I'm guardedly optimistic for Mafia 3, definitely. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I'm hoping to get uh, some scholars uh, from New Orleans, maybe doing a, a kind of a live episode of History Respawns, a live playthrough, maybe a, a series of Let's Plays. Uh, with somebody in New Orleans. Uh, it seems like it's something I should be capable of given the fact that I'm in, I'm at Louisiana Tech now. So uh, look for some coverage of that. I'm really excited about that game. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of kind of games coming out that are set in Louisiana, either mm -hmm. historical Louisiana or modern day Louisiana. I know I just watched the trailer for uh, Resident Evil 7, which just came out and that's set in uh, Southern Louisiana. 
as well. well. You, you so, kind of jumped across my point mentioning the Resident Evil game actually because I was just about to say, isn't it wonderful? And one of the one of the myriad signs of how far video games have come that, you know, we're so far beyond the Gabriel Knight style, New Orleans is the site of voodoo magic kind of thing. Uh, you know, so like the Mafia Three approach sounds so exciting. Um Resident Evil well Resident Evil's gonna do what Resident Evil's gonna do, you know. So Yeah. I, I haven't seen any voodoo stuff in the Resident Evil trailer but i know mafia 3 uh lincoln clay has a voodoo doll oh. with him and he can use it as a weapon in a bit like uh kind of trying to draw uh enemies over to a particular area or trying to frighten them he'll throw the voodoo doll out and <laughs> these italian mobsters will come up on it and be like what is this stuff and you know oh i'm scared that kind of thing so uh i think there is there's a lot there's gonna be a lot to talk about with Mafia 3. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing I think that History Respond episodes are good at drawing out, you know. That's exactly what I want to hear from somebody about. Yeah. Talking yeah. about how they're using this and how they wanted it to work versus how it worked, you know. Uh, so coming up after Mafia 3 is the release of Battlefield 1, uh, and that's later in October, uh, October 21st. And so we're planning on that being our November episode. And Battlefield 1, as you probably know, is uh, part of the Battlefield series, but it's going to be set in the First World War. And I'm personally really excited about this, primarily because it's uh, setting the game in different areas of the First World War, not just on the Western Front. And from the looks of the pre-release coverage, I think that the gameplay looks very much in the vein of Battlefield, but I'm hoping that there's going to be some opportunity for some sort of, you know, maybe, uh, you know, accurate historical portrayal of different battlefields or perhaps uh, some sort of inclusion of an encyclopedia or just kind of different uh, tidbits of historical knowledge uh, within the game. Um, it seems like a lot of critics are concerned, though, it's just going to be uh, a battlefield game with a World War One skin. Yeah, and you wrote a great piece on that for Rock Paper Shotgun, Bob. That if the listeners, if you're listening to this and you haven't read it, you should definitely check that out. That in itself is also an intriguing question because it's a battlefield game. I don't want to hand wave what are genuine concerns, you know. But um, I guess I, I guess my excitement for a World War One setting for a video game at the moment is easily overcoming what concerns I would share over the game. If that makes sense. Yes, I'm in the same boat and. I would say that I don't want to just wave away the problems, like you said. Uh, I think it is particularly worrying that uh, EA just announced that France, as a playable country in that game, is going to be a DLC. <laughs> and so, World War One game. <laughs> oh my god! To, to have to have the the major combatant of the First World War to have the country where most of the first world war was actually fought right being a downloadable character or downloadable content is it's worrying it's yeah it's, it's not something you can just wave away yeah um but we'll see what happens you know i'm i'm willing to take a kind of an open mind and you know like i mentioned in that rock paper shotgun piece a few months ago you know it helps to raise the awareness of the first world war and I think in that sense, uh, this game has the potential to do a lot of good. 
yeah, you know, I, we're going to talk about No Man's Sky in just a little bit. And I was listening to an interview with Sean Murray that he did for The Ringer, uh, actually, Bill Simmons's website, their Channel 33 podcast. And he was talking about um, showing the game to um, uh, basically a NASA scientist and being extremely concerned. Oh, he's going to be annoyed with us because, you know, we kind of handle the atmosphere, like breaking out of the atmosphere to get up into space in a very kind of... Um, paper thin way scientifically and there's all these rules we break and he didn't care he was like this is great you know i got into i got into my line of work because of star trek and this is the kind of stuff that will get kids you know interested in this idea of going into space and i think i feel similarly when it comes to kind of historical video games i mean if this game causes um is it john paul keegan what's his name john keegan if this game causes John Keegan to sell a few more copies every year, it's a start. You know what I mean? Like there, there, yeah. there's a, I'm excited about it. Yeah. John Paul Keegan was, uh, uh, the former drummer for, uh, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> 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 uh, he was on their first album, uh, before it was released. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, again, I think in general, the view of history respawn, or at least my view, is that uh, you need to look at these games with kind of a glasses half full approach, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is unfortunate that they seem to be just cashing in on depictions of the First World War, but at the same time, there isn't a lot of awareness of other battlefields, other areas of fighting uh, in the First World War amongst the general public. Mm-hmm. And I think that this game might might actually do that. And I think back to when I was thinking about becoming a historian, you know, I was watching uh, documentaries on TLC and the History Channel that were pitched to a general audience. And those were rife with, you know, uh, kind of problems with, uh, you know, misconceptions of the past. But it got me interested and got me to a point later on in life where I could identify those misconceptions where I could identify those mistakes. So I think we need to look at this with with an open mind. Yeah, and it's it and it's a very difficult question. I mean, if you look at this Matthew McConaughey film, The Free State of Jones, that came out a few weeks ago, they had historians all over that thing. Like I a former yeah. colleague of mine worked on, you know, in helping the writers of that film. And a huge effort was put into it. And there's still things about that film that that people have, I think, valid concerns about in terms of storytelling and representations of race and everything. So um, I guess the importance is to have these entries into the conversation, you know. So Battlefield 1, for better or for worse, like at the bare minimum, no matter what happens, it's going to be an entry into the conversation, which is something to work with, you know. Well, also coming out on October 21st is kind of the quintessential historical video game. Uh, Civilization Six, and we're planning on doing that episode uh, for uh, December uh, to kind of give us some run-up uh, with the game, kind of give us a, a bit of time to play the game, capture footage for it, and then find a really good guest uh, for that episode. And uh, I think John is going to be taking the lead on that. What do you? What are your early impressions so far of what you've seen of Civilization Six? You know, I'm excited about it. I, I Civilization is. Civilization is in some seriously rarefied air in video games, right? And I think it's so big and it's so important to people. Like somebody shared on Twitter this morning full motion video from Civilization 2 and it's just like tugging at my heartstrings and my intellect. It's always like, oh God, Civilization. And for those of us who are old enough to have been playing this since the first Civilization game, 
you can tell yourself you don't care. You can tell yourself you'll skip a game. It's kind of hard to skip a game most of the time. So, mm-hmm. so anything they're going to do is going to get me excited. But having said that, um, I did like Civilization Five, but they're kind of addressing things in Civilization Six. It's going to be a different kind of a game, and I, I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm really interested in. We've talked about this in a previous podcast. I'm really interested in you know how the city or how settlements interact with their environment. I'm not going to get too excited. I mean, obviously, there's limits to what they're actually going to do, but I, 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 that's the kind of thing that interests me, not least because of that's something that historians are talking about more and more in the last 20 years as well, you know. So, so really, really curious to see how that goes. Yeah, the pre-release coverage has really stressed, and I think this is coming from Firaxis, the developer. Uh, it's really stressed the idea of playing the map mm-hmm. rather than the game. And I think the emphasis there is on kind of dealing with environmental factors that determine what kind of city, what kind of civilization you can build. And I know that that, like you said, John, that's been a really big point of emphasis amongst historians, world historians for the past decade, kind of going back and tackling an approach to history that had been set aside, I think during the eighties and nineties, but has really made a resurgence. And that's kind of uh, approach to history, world history that's associated with uh, the Annals School. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea of uh, taking the long durée of history, focusing on uh, long-term environmental uh, and cultural factors rather than what you would call epiphenomenal political uh, or economic events. And so to see a civilization game kind of take that point of emphasis, or at least that as it's kind of launching off point i think is really exciting and i can't wait to get my hands on it. yeah because that's that's civilization's wheelhouse right there like when you're talking about what civilization is doing and why it interests us as historians because you know bob as you know if you teach a class as i do which is basically history of the world uh <laughs> until 1850 uh one of the things you talk about is you know these massive uh population explosions and then de- declinations population and so on even in my own field in china there's something worth talking about and it seems so obvious now to point out well, the climate changed, you know, or we know the climate was changing. This is such an evident thing. So so I'm excited. Um, and, you know, people are going to be frustrated with Civilization Six, but that's because it's a Civilization game and yeah. we can't help ourselves, you know. We all want it to be the perfect Civilization game, but until until they remake Civilization One, so you can, you can have a, a city fortress at every tile on the border but with Russia, which is what I used to do, it'll never be the same, you know. Yeah, so my personal favorite Civ game is Civilization Two, and you know, looking back on why I enjoyed that game, I think it was because it emphasized military power. And I think with these newer Civilization games, uh, you know, particularly Civilization Five, there's much more emphasis on diplomacy and, in particular, cultural power, which I think is a really awesome change. I don't know if all gamers really kind of, you know, enjoy that. I know a lot of people complained with Civ Five mm-hmm. that military was de-emphasized that you could no longer build the stacks of doom right which you could in previous civilization games and i'm curious to see how civ 6 tackles that problem because i know that is a bit you know kind of a big criticism of the last game and even actually i think people especially people who really liked how the culture system worked in civilization 4 were frustrated by 5 a little bit but then they kind of i think they ironed out a lot of that in the dlc so mm-hmm. it's kind of it's especially with an established series like this, it's weird to think, will we look back on five as kind of the prologue to six, you know, and I don't know, it's as 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 successful as five was, 
it's weird. It, it's never felt like a like it stood up on its own to me as a game with that kind of canon. It felt like kind of like an attempt to update things. But it's funny you mentioned how you, you your ideas have changed. I read Fahrenheit four fifty one this summer. Um, oh, is that your first time? Uh, well, it isn't, but it's the first time in like twenty years that I read it. And uh, I tell you what, mid-30s John and mid-teens John process that book very differently, you know? You read Fahrenheit 451 when you were two years old? That's really impressive. Oh, thanks, Bob. Very nice of you. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the same, a couple of years ago, I read Brave New World for the first time. I'd never read it as a teenager. And my first thought when I finished it was, this would have blown 16-year-old John's mind, but in a completely different way from how it Mm -hmm. just blew my mind. Um, So I think that's a cool thing to think about. And, And Civilization is one of the few series where you can honestly say... Because it's not, it didn't die out, and it's still going, and it's kind of stuck with you. This is what I liked about it when I was eighteen. This is what I like about it now, um, as your perspective is changing, um, and of course for us, professionally, our perspective changed because when you when you when you become trained as an historian or sociologist or anything else, you you do start to think about these things in different ways. Yeah. So yeah, it's just incredible that that series has such longevity, and it's a series that is not only popular with gamers, but it's also popular with educators. And I think that, you know, Firaxis is kind of beginning to lean into the idea of using civilization in the classroom. And they announced uh, during the Games for Change conference uh, a few months ago that they're coming out with a new version of civilization called Civilization EDU, which is designed to be played by uh, kind of K through 12 students. Uh, And that I think comes out around this time next year. So we're really excited about that. I don't know if you've read any of the coverage of CivEDU yet, John. I've read a bit of the coverage. I'm definitely excited about it. Um, I think I might have said in a previous podcast that I gave my students an assignment in January, in our intensive January course, to to play Civ Five with each other um, for basically like about a five to six hours worth of play. Um, and it was kind of very rudimentary and everything else, but just kind of get their thoughts on it and, and try and try and get them to do kind of a a version of what we do with the history response series i suppose so i haven't seen a huge amount of what it's actually going to look like what i have seen as you're saying is a commitment on the side of the people making the game to to get into this and get engaged in this and i think that i'm confident it's going to work i think that something that happens a lot in education is that technology gets held up as this magic bullet it's going to work. So five or six years ago, or a bit longer than that, people were talking about MOOCs, the the massive online yep. courses. Ah, we won't even need teachers in, in X amount of years. And that concerned a lot of people who teach for a living, not just out of self-interest, but because uh, there's a reason we have a model where a human being asks you questions and pushes you and, and things like that. Um, but that has proved not to be correct. And so... Uh, but I think that the key, as you point out, Bob, with the Civilization EDU thing, is that there is a commitment from the people actually making the game. And I think there's huge potential there. Um, it's not going to substitute books, <laughs> but whether – whether I guess what I like about it is, is it opens doors to different types of students. Yes. So if you have students that – for whatever reason, um, there's a lot going on in their life uh, outside of the classroom, or or they're not mo- for whatever reason they lack motivation, or they or they're they're struggling to gather motivation. This kind of thing is wonderful, but it's good for all other kinds of students as well. And I I think that it's something that once educators really can get a grip on it and start to perform or start to create, I should say, their own solutions and and really kind of shape their own approaches to it. I think Civilization U could get really really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So that does it for our upcoming schedule. 
Uh, I think we hope to maybe try to add a couple of games to that if we can. We've been talking about doing a couple of episodes for the YouTube series a month. And so we'll see what happens with that. But uh, those are the games, those uh, those games, uh, Bioshock, Mafia 3, Battlefield 1, and then uh, Civilization 6. Those are the games that we are for sure going to cover in the YouTube series and then also the podcast uh, in the coming months. And I think that that's probably the best lineup of games uh, that we've had. Uh, and they're all, I mean, for the most part, except for Bioshock, they're all new releases. And it just kind of goes to show that people love historical video games and there is almost too much to cover uh, when it comes to this stuff. So John, let's, let's wrap up this episode by kind of talking about what we've been playing uh, either historical video games or non-historical video games. Well, I have been playing a lot of, or as much as I can of a, a game called no man's sky. I don't know if you've heard of it, Bob, it's an obscure title. I, I, I managed to pick it up. Yeah. I, <laughs> you know, I heard some people talking about it. And before we started recording, you know, Bob, you mentioned maybe we talk about No Man's Sky, and I thought that's it's kind of been in the back of my head. What I think of this is kind of an historian. Um, there's a lot of what's interesting is what the Archeo gaming community is doing with it. Have you seen the stuff online, Bob? I haven't yet. Um, so I haven't seen the actual content they're producing yet. I follow a few of the Archeo gaming people on Twitter, people like Megan Dennis and Reinhardt, people like this. Um, and the value project that's all caps v-a-l-u-e uh they were what happened was they were launching towards it which is really exciting you know they were talking about we're launch you know we're setting off today to kind of document this space and everything or um that wasn't meant as a pun to document this kind of you know this gaming space <laughs> um and then because i have a pc and not a playstation i had to wait for it to release and i went to chicago so i missed the release day and I kind of very petulantly started ignoring everything about No Man's Sky so I could actually play the game myself. <laughs> so I'm looking forward, now that I've played a bit of it myself, I'm looking forward to seeing what they've been doing because I've, now that I've played it myself, it's like, my word, for a game that some people express surprise, it wasn't what they thought it was going to be, um, or, you know, the mechanics and everything was a little bit different from what they expected. It's the perfect game for the value project and the way they've been talking about what they want yes. to do. Yes. And yeah. exploring, collecting, documenting, my word it's 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 like you know it's like being on the mountains of formosa in the 1870s all over again you know this is, like, this yeah. is how this is how the imperial world documented the conquered world you know to a certain extent yes. you know yeah that's what it reminded me of as well is kind of thinking back to 19th century explorers and i was thinking in particular of the famous narrative of uh, stanley going after uh, dr livingston in central africa and kind of the way that Stanley uh, and Livingston, to a certain extent, uh, interacted with native communities, indigenous communities uh, in Central Africa. And I think some of the some of the writing and some of the kind of basic game mechanics for No Man's Sky tends to replicate that same sort of narrative. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you spend a lot of the game attempting to find uh, these. Uh, they're not really plaques. They're more like monoliths. That's what they call them. Uh, and with the monoliths, you are using them to find out more about the Atlas, uh, which is kind of this godlike god entity. Uh, but then also you use those monoliths and the stones around them to collect uh, knowledge of the language. And this kind of idea that ancient societies, these ancient indigenous societies 
write their language on stone tablets. I mean, that's lifted <laughs> straight out of this kind of colonial narrative, uh, which uh, was often found not to be the case, right? Stanley mm -hmm. and Livingston, these other explorers often, uh, you know, kind of made the point that uh, they were collecting these things off of stone tablets when in fact they were getting them from their uh, indigenous guides, right? right They're getting right. the knowledge of the language from the people themselves. <laughs> and they wrote about finding it on stone tablets because that's what people expected back in Europe. They expected it to be like the Egyptian hieroglyphics, right? right. Um, that these indigenous, the, these indigenous people, these current indigenous people uh, had no knowledge of written language. And so that they, uh, these explorers had to uh, take it from stone tablets from the ancients, right? People who were direct ancestors of the Europeans and not from the indigenous people who were there, right? So I think in a way, No Man's Sky, you know, I think if you look at it as just as a piece of science fiction, it it makes a lot of sense. It fits right into that genre. But if you step back and you look at this as how do we as modern people think about exploration and think about uh, finding new, uh, you know, new species, new communities. Uh, a lot of that, uh, the, a lot of the way we think about that comes from these 19th century imperialist explorers. And you can see a lot of that kind of narrative replicated in how your character interacts with the environment, but then also interacts with different alien species where you're uh, basically, uh, your narrator comments on uh, the physical body, the appearance of these uh, aliens, but then also kind of treats them as uh, wholly foreign and somewhat uh, rudimentary in their their thinking. Right, uh, and it's it's a bit it's a bit insulting <laughs> uh, to see that sort of stuff, especially as somebody who who knows that these uh, these uh, narratives from nineteenth century explorers are so fraught with uh, problems of mm -hmm. racism of. Uh, you know, different kind of uh, subjective analysis uh, and overt, uh, you know, what we would call Orientalism. Right. Yeah. Basically. It's it's funny. Those encounters with the aliens are intriguing because there's, you know, different kinds of races. And so you kind of have, there's kind of the haughty um, collective mind kind of tech race and he'll kind of ignore you, dismiss you. But you have a lot of encounters where um, he's fidgeting. He's, you know, he's clearly thirsty. Do you give him water kind of thing, which is kind of a very video gamey thing to do. But like you're saying, kind of restricts down the kind of the vision of these of these individuals. Um, and I know they're fictional individuals, but like you said, this comes through. Like I just finished writing a book where I talk about the Japanese who go to the island of Taiwan uh, starting in 1895 and they go down through the island just documenting the island. Um, using the Latin alphabet, um, you know, uh, Latin slash Greek uh, prefix terms to, to, to document new butterflies and things like that that they found, as you can in the game. And also the Aboriginal Taiwanese, who were different from mm -hmm. the Chinese Taiwanese. So it's this whole complex thing. So it's interesting. But things that, you know... For example, I love the little language mechanic of the game, though. So one of the, one of the races, I've gathered enough of their words that I'm getting fragments of the language... Um, mm. so that's a cool little touch and I would love to maybe bring this put this in the hands of students alongside maybe some discussions about like you said Bob kind of the, the West's 19th century documentation and mythification of the Orient and other places and then maybe have them like play the game for a couple hours and say right or even just see if a student in the room has played the game which is likely if I teach the class the next year or so and, and talk about 
the way the game works for those who like it, and I'm someone who likes the game very much, just the joy of doing this, you know, the joy of collecting the stuff and renaming it and and documenting it and cataloging, cataloging it. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that, like, you know, your 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 you know, our parents who are not of a generation of video gamers see you playing and go, "What are you doing? Like, why why are you working?" You know. Yeah, but it. It makes sense as a game mechanic, and I think you know a lot of people when they talk about why they play games, they talk about it in terms of they like to mm-hmm. feel empowered. Yeah. And historically, there's nothing more empowering than discovering, quote unquote, discovering uh, and collecting and cataloging an entire different mm-hmm. civilization, right? Then in a way, and this has been talked about a lot by you know people like Edward Said, uh, by Michel Foucault. In a way, that process of cataloging of collecting gives you power, mm-hmm. gives you a uh, greater understanding of a civilization than that civilization has right. over itself. And so I think that that kind of Orientalist, that kind of imperialist narrative has kind of seeped into this video game, which I find really fascinating. To yeah, think into about. this sci-fi game whose creators would certainly didn't intend for that consciously, you know. Yeah. Just... But that's, that's, yeah. that's what it yeah. is. It's, it's an un- unconscious carrying forward of what we think about when we think about exploration. Like this is the only way that we can talk about and think about exploration is in this kind of mm-hmm. orientalist kind of imperialist mindset. <laughs> it's just Yeah, and I mean I don't I hope I'm not I stating the well I hope I am stating the obvious, but like that doesn't make it a bad game and it doesn't make its developers bad either. You oh, know, no. and this is just it's fascinating. Sure. This is how this stuff works, you know. One one of the problems we have yes. in not just in video games and in lots of different areas in life, but certainly in conversations with video games is people get can get frustrated when they hear comments and critiques like that. And it's like, I really like the game, you know, like I'm not going out and, you know, say, you know, saying penance after every time I play the game. It's just, but it's, but it's clearly there. It's really right. fascinating. Really fascinating. Right. Yeah. We're not sitting there saying Sean Murray and Hello Games are racist imperialists. That's <laughs> no, not what we're saying. No, we're just saying. Definitely that, not. Definitely You know, not. you can see even in this sci-fi game, even in a game that's set in the distant future, you can see the kind of cultural historical basis of we as uh, Western uh, people, you can see that basis, that kind of cultural, those cultural antecedents seeping into something that's supposed to be set in a distant galaxy in the far future, right? And that's just, that's incredible. Um, so what have you been playing otherwise, other than No Man's Sky? Um, I've also been playing uh, Total War Warhammer, or just Total Warhammer, it's easier to say, although not the name of the game. Um, which I'm, many people probably know already, but is basically the Total War series uh, now played out in the fictional universe of the Warhammer series, which um, is lots of orcs and dwarves and elves, but also vampires um, and the chaos forces who in the game mechanically kind of show up eventually and just kind of ruin everything. And uh, it's a universe that I like. It's kind of got this, it's kind of a nice gritty British, I suppose, flavored, grimdarky version of kind of fantasy stuff. Um, it's kind of not really high fantasy for the most part. Um, but what's been interesting, the reason I bring it up in this podcast is it's so interesting to see a series that has, whose bread and butter is all about historical context, historical settings. So both Shogun games, the Total War series, are very, very important um, games in that series. Uh, Total War Rome. Um, the original one and the newer one and the Total War series is a great series to explore further for History Respawn and just a great series in general because you have the um, just prior to the Edo period the period of unification in Japan 
you have Attila the Hun mm-hmm. more recently, Ancient Rome, um, em- uh, Total War Empires, all these fantastic settings. And so to take that game series and suddenly it's orcs and dwarves is fascinating because they're really using a lot of the same foundations they use mm. for a game set in ancient Rome or a game set in uh, in 16th century Japan. And of course, what they have is they have this massive basis of um, this kind of these foundations of, for lack of a better word, for of the lore, mm-hmm. right? Of all these things that the that the authors, that the writers who work for Games Workshop have been writing for decades now onto where these guys come from, what their religious systems are, and why dwarves act the way they do and everything else. And so it's really, it's been really intriguing to play that, you know? Yeah. And in theory, it's completely ahistorical, but it clearly isn't ahistorical because it's 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 just, it's a fictional history. And, and it relies on the same kind of, same kind of tropes, the same sort of yes. what you might call historical themes that you see in real, real life history. I, I think about the same thing with something like Game of Thrones, where mm-hmm. you know yep. uh, it's a fantastical setting with magic and with uh, dragons, but at the same time, you know, uh, the author George Martin is clearly pulling directly from medieval European history, directly really from English uh, mm-hmm. medieval history, uh, kind of the. The War of the Roses, in mm-hmm. particular, and Big time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just uh, you know fascinating. Again, um, you know, we had an episode this time last year with uh, Professor Matthew Gabriel, uh, Virginia Tech, talking about a lot of these things, these same sort of kind of historical themes, historical uh, topics showing up in something like The Witcher, and then Dragon Age Inquisition, where. You know, again, it's a fantasy setting, but it's kind of also a historical setting uh, to a certain extent. So uh, that's interesting. I've I've never actually played any of the Warhammer games. I was really interested by uh, what you're talking about in the sense that this is still kind of a total war game. So mm-hmm. very much. You know, so. I love those. So it might be worth <laughs> might be worth my time to check out. Well, it's interesting. You know, going on from what you were just talking about, um, and a couple of reviewers mentioned this. It being said in a fictional universe allows it to be liberating mm-hmm. in a way, in the sense that they just basically, um, Total War Warhammer is, this might sound a bit superfluous talking about a Total War game, it's very action-oriented, mm. like even by the standards of Total War. So mm. the Greenskins, which are kind of this conglomeration of various orcs slash goblin races, actually have a mechanic in the game called fightiness. And if they're not fighting enough, then they start to freak out and their public order collapses. So hmm. in the so and I, I've been playing with dwarves quite a bit and dwarves are on the border with the green skins. So the buckers never leave you alone. Right. So um, <laughs> in a way that um, so if you like the diplomatic aspects of total war games, you're not going to like Warhammer, but it allows them to ramp it up. And, and Game of Thrones is kind of similar because, you know, George R. R. Martin. And the people who write the uh, TV show, they get to have their cake and eat it too because they'll get all this credit for the historical influences and then they can just go crazy and do what they like. So they're not going to get in too much trouble. You know what I mean? So yeah. so as much as they kind of base, you know, well, they clearly base the horse lord, nomadic peoples on the Mongols to a certain extent, they can just go wild um, because, well, we're not being offensive. They're not Mongolians. They're, you know, they're a fictional race we create. Right, yeah. Um, and so that's that's interesting. It's also a testament to their skill. They're not getting in trouble for it. Yeah. But that that's an interesting thing. And that, that compares to one more game I've been playing, actually, Bob. I've been playing fragments of all these games. Uh, <laughs> I played a little bit of Elder Scrolls Online. 
Oh, and, really? Yeah, and you just reminded me of it there talking about Dragon Age Inquisition because I remember thinking this when you did the episode last year. And of course, it just came up on the podcast last week as well again. Um, I I won't go into too much detail on the scrolls online. But what I will say is, for me, the stronger parts of it are where it satisfies an Elder Scrolls fan desire for the history of this of Tamriel, this fictional world. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting because there's a lot of things that game, I think, doesn't do all that well, unfortunately. But what the Elder Scrolls Online does pretty well, though, is look at this history of this these people and these betrayers. And if you want to, you can sit down and read books for hours. You know, it's that really fascinates me and something I'd love to see us talk about more in the series in the future, too. Um not just games that kind of assume or or kind of take on the clothing of historical context and rely upon it f to flesh things out, but these games, like these fantasy games in particular, that just create their own history is really intriguing to me. You know, that's a really interesting idea. I was thinking about that with reference to games like Bioshock, where mm -hmm. you know you're collecting uh, the backstory of what's going on through audio logs and diary entries and whatnot, and you know, how games create their own internal histories, you know, independent mm -hmm. of a historical setting. I think that's that's a really interesting topic. Yeah, we should we should do something on that. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bob. I try. <laughs> uh, so for myself, I, uh, I got a subscription uh, during the summer to PlayStation Now, which is their uh, online streaming service. Oh, cool. And so I've been using that to stream a bunch of uh, kind of PlayStation games that I had missed in the previous years, uh, all for the wonderful price of $30 for three months. And uh, so with that subscription, I played Batman Arkham Origins, which is very much a Batman game, uh, Rocksteady inspired. I played uh, The Wolf Among Us. Oh, uh, I like Telltale that. game. It was good. Yeah. yeah. I think that too many of the episodes concluded with your character getting shot up and beat <laughs> up. Uh, and that was kind of the climax. I thought they, they relied on that too much, but otherwise I thought it was a really interesting world. Uh, and then uh, finally I played uh, Spec Ops The Line. Oh, I've never played that. Which, which is a game that's really popular with critics. Mm -hmm. And after playing it, I can see why. Mm -hmm. It is very much kind of a, it's very much an antidote to kind of the gung-ho, uh, american empire approach that you get in call of duty games uh and spec ops the line really takes that narrative and turns it on its head in really interesting ways i can't say right. that the game is completely uh successful but uh it's a game that does well with kind of adapting uh you know kind of modern uh military shooter tropes uh subverting those and then also it it's a it's kind of a rudimentary but serviceable adaptation of Heart of Darkness, uh, Joseph Conrad's mm -hmm. Heart of Darkness. Uh, and I think it's a really fascinating game. I think it took me about six hours to beat. So if you get a chance, I I would highly recommend cool. it just, just to get the experience. Yeah. Um, I would warn you, though, it is a cover-based shooter in the mold of Gears of right. War. So if you feel a bit of fatigue <laughs> with that genre, I would maybe wait uh, maybe a couple more years uh, until cover-based shooters have been kind of uh, washed from your memory. <laughs> um, I, I put it, I played it on easy just because I didn't want to deal right. with, you know, the mechanics of cover-based shooters. And I had a good time and 
it's a game that gave me a lot to think mm -hmm. about. I think that's a great um, criteria for a game. If you're willing to play it on easy, that means the writers have done something well, I think. Um, or you play a yes. game you otherwise wouldn't play. Shout out to students at Centre College. Students recommend that game to me all the time. All yeah. the time. Students bring that up all the time. So that's, I think, so that's that's also encouraging to see that, like, the critical reaction, which is very positive, is echoed amongst, you know, people who play the game, like, who you know, who are thinking. Yeah. And it's great as an historian, well, at least I hope the connection is there, where, you know, they know I play video games because I bring it up and I shamelessly hawk the YouTube series and I tell them all about it because it makes them, makes them believe for a brief moment their professor's cool. Um, but also, then I spend an hour talking to them about... Um, the experience of war, for example, and then they bring us back up the line. It's like you know, you're punching the air. Yes, it's working. You know, <laughs> it's working. Can I ask you a quick question too, Bob, about um, a wolf yes. among us? Because what do you think about? As you mentioned, they lean into it too pretty hard with the whole shoot up, shooting up at the end of the episode kind of thing. I loved the style of that game. Like I love the color palette they chose. I love the music and everything. But they're very clearly trying to kind of create an interpretation of kind of a noir kind of aspect and so again thinking as an historian I guess just very broadly it's very it's hugely influenced by what we think of today as noir storytelling and what what did you think of that I mean do you think that was a success well I think in terms of the structure mm -hmm. of the story it is very much a noir story I think you've got uh the main character you know kind of a Sam Spade like detective right uh, who's in a case that he's in over his head. Uh, there's a lot of false turns mm -hmm. in the story where he thinks one thing is going on, but it turns out to be something completely different. Uh, he's got a couple of uh, femme fatales that he's working with. Um, there's uh, the prostitute at the beginning of the game and then also um, you know, uh, Snow White also kind of works as a kind of a femme fatale, a, you know, a, a, a girl Friday. Uh, if you will, but with the specifics of the story, it it doesn't really work as a noir. Uh, for instance, there's way too much violence. You know, I think if you were going to call this a noir, there would be one instance of violence, and it would come at the climax of the story. Whereas this this one has a, a climax of violence at the end of just about every episode. I think there's five episodes, and I think it ends violently in four of those five episodes. Um, so I think that it's, it's an interesting game. I would not say it's a very successful noir, mm -hmm. but, uh, I still enjoyed it. I mean, I would recommend it. Uh, it makes me interested in reading the comics as well. They're very good. So, They're very good. Uh, that's what yeah. I've heard. So, uh, I think in that sense, it's a successful game. All right. Well, with that, that's going to do it for us today on the history respawn podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you are uh, interested in the show, please consider subscribing to us on either iTunes or on SoundCloud. And it would really help the show if you rated us and left us a review on iTunes. It would help other people find the show. Uh, in addition, if you're feeling particularly generous uh, and you enjoy what we do here at History Respawn, please consider contributing to our Patreon, which is at www.patreon.com forward slash History Respawn. Uh, thank you very much. Until next time, bye.